Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning and welcome to The Michael Reed Show. This is Carl Dervin of the Irish Sun sitting in for Michael this week. Coming up in this morning's programme, we'll be looking once again at the closure of 159 rural post offices in Ireland and asking what is the balance now between rural and city life in modern-day Ireland. Councillor Joanna Byrne for Sinn Féin, Councillor on Louth County Council and Councillor Nick Killian, Independent Councillor on Meath County Council, were just two of the visitors to the Saline water plant over the weekend. We'll be asking them about their concerns as Irish Water looked to upgrade the plant at Staline and what the implications are for both Drogheda and particularly for Rithoth in that instance. We will pay tribute to Marius Bors, a 15-year-old Boy Scout from Dunshockland who was tragically killed in a car crash on a holiday in Moldova last night in Dunshockland Community College, gone home, the fitting tribute to Marius. And we'll be talking to Michal Brennan, Scout leader with Dunshockland, as we pay tribute to the life of a 15-year-old boy who did so much for the community and for his fellow scouts. Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Industrial Relations with the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, will tell us why his members are looking and are prepared to take strike action in a row there over wages. Paddle Shocknessy with a good news story from Fahard Community School, just outside Dundalk. The National School there has reopened. Pat will be live on site. We'll be talking to some of the mums and maybe even some of the excited pupils as life begins once again for Fahard Community School. But we're going to begin with a good Good news story because Gareth Jordan is the owner of Jordan's Londis in Summerhill. And Gareth, you have one of the best news stories of the day for us. I do, Carl. Uh, we saw the winning tickets um, for last night's Irish Club jackpot. And lucky winners won around £4.75 million. Uh, and we're absolutely thrilled for uh, the lucky people. How much is £4.7 million, Gareth? What could you do with £4.7 million? I wouldn't be here. I'd be in the air, <laughs> up in the airport, talking to Bobby. <laughs> you'd be all right. You'd be buying the island, would you? Oh yeah, we'd be gone. <laughs> you've only oh, just look, you've only just taken over the shop, haven't you? And only recently. Yeah, my new retailer bought it off uh, John and Sheila Gillen, who uh, were um, proprietors and retailers in Summerhill for the, the best part of thirty years. Uh, and I took it over. They retired in November last year. I took it over in November, so I'm here about ten months. So it's. Uh, it's a fantastic start to my, my retail uh, ownership. So are you the lucky omen, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> it's certainly, yeah, look, it's just great. The, the, the buzz around the, the village is born and in the shop is just absolutely it's added atmosphere and buzz to the place. And uh, we're all just, you know, who's the lucky winner? We're all going to know. And, and, and do you think, again, I mean, has the shop sold any big winners in the past? You know, has, has there been anything of this nature no. ever before? 
No, not that I'm aware of. Um, we, we recently sold a, a scratch card winner to somebody we know. We won a few thousand, but no, nothing, nothing like this. Absolutely nothing like this. And um, When I got the phone call last night in the National Lottery, 10 to 10 last night, I knew that uh, something was up and uh, it wasn't all Ireland tickets he was ringing. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you were sitting at home or, and the phone rings and it's the lottery to tell you you've sold a ticket worth 4.7 million. The excitement, I mean, did, did, did word get out last night? Because I know the lottery released a statement and I saw it myself saying that it was somebody in Meath had bought the ticket. And uh, I did think for a second and then I realised I hadn't bought a ticket in Meath, so it wasn't me. But yeah. they, did the excitement get out last night? It did, yeah. yeah. I was actually working myself and we were locking up for 10 o'clock and I was upstairs, I got a phone call and I came running down to one of my uh, the staff members with me, Geraldine, and I told her and the two was were giddy with excitement and then we rang around and I rang the manager, Kathleen, and and then I remember saw Vivian to let her know because she was in this morning. Just so she was had a heads up on it, and um, it was out on Facebook then last night, and uh, it's just gone on from there. So people are just you know contacting and texting and ringing and uh, putting messages up on Facebook and so forth and Twitter. And I, so it's, uh, it's yeah, it's fantastic news. Really do, do you do you know Gareth when when the ticket was sold? I mean, did they tell you? No, I don't know the exact time. Um, I'd, be, I'd be straight onto the cameras if I did. <laughs> but, um, no, we don't know the exact time. All I know is it was bought on Friday the 24th uh, and they would have done a double draw. So they would have done a draw for Saturday night and uh, last night. So if anybody in the area has done that, check their tickets. It could be... Uh, it could have a bigger bank bank because of course on, I think on, on Saturday it was just over 4 million which is a colossal amount of money in its own right but you're probably thinking if you bought the double ticket you're probably thinking well I didn't win on this on the Saturday uh, and sure we'll, we'll take our chances and here you are now sitting on a 4.7 million euro ticket yeah. what what happens next I mean the, the, the winner has I think is it a, a couple of, couple of months to identify themselves with the lottery isn't it yeah I think it's something like 60 or 90 days they have to claim it so mm. um and look, whether they, they make themselves public or not, that would be known to them. Um, and will we ever know? I don't know. If it's someone local, there might be a good chance we might hear or know. Mm. But uh, it, could be, it could be like that film, Wake and Ned, which is on telly today. <laughs> <laughs> with David Kelly, God bless him. Yeah, and of yeah. course, somebody there could be somebody walking around the village of Summerhill this morning with a very large smile on their face and everyone's going to go, ah, it must be you. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And, and of course, the good all, news. You know, there's all the girls are speculating who they think it might be, but, <laughs> but you know, you have to respect their privacy. Hopefully, and I just wish them all the best in their newfound wealth. You know, well, it's certainly a life-changing moment, isn't it, for whoever the lucky yeah. winner is? And as you say, you have to wish them the very best of luck. And of course, there's a little bonus for you as the, as the seller of the ticket as well, isn't there? Yeah, I, think, I believe so, but I'm not clear any details of that as of yet. So mm. I'll, uh, I'll wait to hear from them. I don't. I don't think you'll be buying the island, Garrett, somehow. <laughs> Look, I'll take the service. We'll buy them a few drinks. We'll do something and uh, have our own little celebration because uh, it's great news. And uh, we've never sold that like that in the store before. And you know, there's great excitement and buzz here. And uh, you know, it's, yeah, all the staff is there, something for it as well. You know, yeah. What a great way for you and the staff to begin your life as as owners of La- Jordan's Landis there in Summerhill. Uh, I suspect yeah. you're looking for two tickets for the All Ireland, are you? I am indeed. Have you got any calls? I, I don't at the moment, but sure, the, the, the lottery might ring you up. I mean, I'm sure they have a box or something at Croke Park. They might. Uh, and I suspect you're not shouting for Tyrone. Uh, no, no. Well, the good news is, uh, Gareth, as I'm sure you're well aware, you're living in a, in a village that has produced many All-Ireland winners over the years. So oh, yeah. That might be lucky for you. But look, to whoever is sitting, walking around Summerhill, who knows, Gareth, there could have been somebody passing through either. We don't know, do we? Yeah, no, that, because we do get a lot of passing through in, in mm. Summerhill. It's a trim to cook uh, kind of road, so well, uh, it could be quite well. But look, whoever it is, 
you know, as I said to you, wishing the very best of luck. Absolutely, and well done. We're delighted, but it's, it's great for the store, you know. And well done to you and everybody working there at Jordan's Landis in Summerhill. If you own the 4.7 million lotto ticket, that was sold in the shop on Friday the 24th, part of a double ticket for the draw on Saturday and the draw last night. And you do listen to LMFM and you'd like to come and share your story with us, please do give us a ring. Now, speaking of lotteries, the driving test has been a lottery for so many young drivers over the years, uh, myself included, of course. I remember going up Flower Hill and Navin all those years ago. In trepidation, but sure, it was all grand. We got the, the test of the first go. Independent Senator Victor Boyan is on the phone. Independent Senator Victor, good morning to you. Good morning, Carl. How are you? You have recently published uh, some interesting figures on the waiting list for driving tests across the country and you're calling on the Minister, Shane Ross, to take action. Just give us the headline uh, figure, Senator. Well, the headline is, first I want to thank the RSA because they actually provided me with the figures. I was forensic enough in terms of putting in questions to them, but they confirmed to me in writing last week. So these are the RSA figures which I'm sharing with you. And they've confirmed that 83,000 people are on the driving test waiting list. That's a phenomenal amount. When we had a debate in the Shannon some months ago, Minister Ross came to the House, um, we discussed this matter, and it was then 70,000. So a substantial increase, 83,000 people waiting to do a driving test, which is, which is really a crisis situation. And I suppose what brought it to my attention was county councillors and city councillors, particularly councillors in Mead, uh, and right, right across the country, for that matter, made representations to my office saying they were receiving on a daily basis complaints from their constituents of people who wish to do their test who are being not getting an opportunity, not getting an appointment, main them going on for weeks. And the RSA say they hope to do you know, twelve weeks of their target and yet we know people are waiting six months to do a test. So we have a crisis and I suppose we want a solution and I suppose the solution is that we're looking for a minister and I'm calling a minister Ross to sanction the appointment of a substantial number of new testers to cut into this long waiting list. Just to give you some more context on this, uh, Senator, 45,000 learner drivers are waiting on their tests and recent regulation changes meant that you, you, you have to have a qualified driver in the car with you if you're a learner driver. We know there's an increase in, in employment. We know that the students now are going back to school, for example. College students are going to go back to college next month. Is it fair to have 45,000 learners waiting on their driving test? No, it's absolutely not. It's not fair and it's not right. And, and, and another thing, as I think this particular important time, as people are now preparing to go back to university and third level education, uh, we know that parents are effectively having to, they can't sit in the car all day and wait for their students to come in and out of college. So therefore what's happening is their, well, their sons and daughters may have a driving a learner, uh, they need to accompany them. And you cannot accompany and hang around a university or third level is in Navin.
That's not good enough. So what, what, what's the solution? And I believe the solution is that Minister Ross, who has responsibility for transport, people forget that. Minister Ross is involved in so many other things. Um, but people forget he's also responsible, the Minister for, uh, Minister for Transport. And I'm calling for him to work with the RSA to sanction a substantial... I'm, I'm talking about 50, possibly 60 new transistors uh, to cut into this list and allow young people that have trained, they've spent their money, they've got their instruction, and all they want is fair play, and they want an opportunity to do a test and to be assessed to certify that they are a safe driver. And, well, and I think that's not a reasonable request. Well, Senator Victor Boyan, Independent Senator, we thank you for your contribution this morning and those figures on drivers waiting at tests. 82,862, to be precise, drivers currently on the waiting list for their driving test. 45,000 learners waiting. And of course, Drogheda is soon to get a driving test centre. And I'm sure the people of Drogheda will be very glad to hear that that's on the way. So too are the brakes. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. And you're welcome back. We thank you for taking the time to listen this morning. 086-1800-658 is our text number. 086-1800-658 if you would like to make a comment. And I'm sure there will be comments on the homelessness crisis, which is becoming bigger by the day. The latest figures from the Department of Housing for the July homeless figures show that there are 9,891 people now living in emergency accommodation across the state. 19 extra in July. 3,867 children woke up in emergency accommodation this morning. Many of them preparing are already on their way back to school. 3,867 people or children woke up in emergency accommodation. Enough people to fill Park Talton and Avon 9,891 on the emergency accommodation register as we speak. Joining us to discuss this and his party's proposal of a no-confidence motion in the Housing Minister, Owen Murphy, is the Sinn Féin Housing Spokesperson, Owen O'Brien. Owen, good morning to you. Michael, good morning to you. It's Carl, sorry. <laughs> sorry, oh, Carl, Carl, sorry. Apologies, Carl. No, you're grand. Uh, Michal, or Michael is on a well-deserved holiday this and week. I'm sure he is, and I hope he Absolutely. enjoys it. This figure own is shocking. 3,867 children, 9,891 people in total in emergency accommodation. Absolutely. And, and just to put that in perspective, uh, in the counties that many of your own listeners are, are, are uh, coming in from, you have 118 adults and children uh, in emergency accommodation in County Louth and 81 adults and children in County Meath. And the reason I give you those figures is because I think anybody who drives around any of the towns or, or, or villages in those two counties would easily be able to count up 118 or 81 vacant properties, some council-owned, the vast majority would have been privately owned, uh, many of which could actually be used to get families with children out of emergency accommodation and into secure homes. And what it shows you is, is that despite the fact that month on month this crisis keeps getting worse, if the government was to change policy, real solutions could be found and less families would be uh, languishing in emergency accommodation today. I'm going to ask you about the government's policy and your own policy in a second, but Merchants Key Ireland, one of one of the groups working with the homeless, say that in reality the figure is over 10,000 because they're, they're saying that, for example, people sleeping rough on the streets in Dublin, many of them would not have registered for this survey. Well, in fact, it's even worse than that. And this is something I've been talking about a lot. I made a detailed submission to three government departments over a year ago. Uh, the, the figures that we're quoting from today are only uh, adults and children living in Department of Housing funded emergency accommodation. So that's, that's all that includes. There are at any one time up to 100 people sleeping rough uh, in the greater Dublin area and obviously then a smaller number sleeping rough in other urban centres. But we also have two other groups of, of people in emergency accommodation that aren't being counted here. TUSLA and the Department of Family and, and Youth Affairs funds 
uh, emergency accommodation for women and children fleeing domestic violence. Now, we don't have monthly figures for those, but we know on average in a given year, uh, a thousand women and two and a half thousand children will pass through those emergency accommodation facilities. They're not counted in these figures. We also have about 600 adults and children who were asylum seekers and living in direct provision, but they have got their leave to remain. So they now have their stamp for visas and, and they're entitled to, to leave direct provision. But they can't leave direct provision because, of course, the mental crisis. Uh, and therefore, they're effectively using direct provision as emergency accommodation. So, in fact, the figure is not only higher than, than 10,000, but we estimate it's higher than 11,000. We have repeatedly asked, even on a quarterly basis, for the Departments of Justice, Children, uh, uh, Youth and Family Affairs and Housing to coordinate a release of those figures so we can see the full extent. And that's also before we get to hidden homelessness, sofa surfing. We have huge numbers of families who are living in box bedrooms and their extended family in very cramped conditions. In the north of Ireland, for example, they count those people as homeless. Uh, but unfortunately, in the south, we don't. So the figures are 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 a, a underestimation, but still they show that the problem each month is getting worse. We had Father Peter McVerry on the programme yesterday and he was saying that when the, the figure was approaching 5,000, he warned that, that, that this was a tsunami. That figure has now doubled. It has, yes. And, and my big concern is this. Month on month, the figures are getting worse. And despite repeated calls from many of us op- on the opposition uh, and from uh, uh, eminent experts like Peter McVerry and the Simon communities in Focus Ireland uh, uh, to change policy, the government keeps doing the same thing over and over again. And of course, if things get worse uh, month on month and they don't change the policy, uh, then things aren't going to get better. So what we need is the minister to accept, which so far he has refused to do, that our current plan isn't working. And between now uh, and uh, budget day in a couple of weeks' time, to make it clear that they're going to not only change the policy direction, but significantly increase investment in the delivery of social and affordable housing uh, to meet the needs of the growing numbers of people who are locked out of, of secure accommodation. The Minister has said on, um, the Minister has said very clearly this week that you guys are just making a big noise about this, that in fact you, you support the government's housing plan and that you've no housing plan of your own. What is your housing plan? Okay, and, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Sinn Féin has made a point of repeatedly uh, publishing detailed policy proposals and sending them to the government, uh, and in advance of every budget, outlining a detailed alternative capital plan. So, so just to give you some examples, uh, we argued last year, and we'll do the same again this year, that capital investment in social affordable housing needs to double. So it needs to go from somewhere in the region of a billion euros annually to at least two billion euros. Not only does the government need to uh, increase the delivery of real social housing owned by approved housing bodies and councils in excess of 10,000 new units a year, but it also needs to start providing in good quality mixed income, mixed tenure estates, directly provided affordable rental and affordable purchase for families who are working and above the thresholds for social housing. The delivery time of those houses needs to be dramatically reduced. I made a detailed submission two years ago to the department. There's a crazy 18 to 24 month approval process uh, uh, to get social housing uh, up and running, that could be cut down to nine. And on the homeless prevention front, and this is really important, uh, part of our problem is too many families are entering into emergency accommodation, they're becoming homeless. Single biggest cause of homelessness at the moment, according to the uh, NGOs, is what we call vacant possession notices to quit, when landlords are in possession for the banks to sell uh, and they want the property to be sold vacant. Many of those landlords uh, uh, secured uh, buy-to-let tax breaks when they bought the properties. And what we want is is a change to legislation to prevent those landlords from evicting tenants into homelessness. It was proposed by Focus Ireland. I tabled it as an amendment to government legislation in 2016. 
but Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael both opposed it. That amendment in and of itself uh, would have prevented many families from becoming homeless who unfortunately ended up in emergency accommodation because of the decisions of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. The figures don't make for good reading in terms of the number of homeless, but the other statistics which emerged this week, Dublin rent, for example, is now the sixth highest in the developed world. Dublin prices uh, are 25% above where they should be, according to the economic experts, and we're probably heading, according to them, for another crash. But they're also saying that Dublin prices are up 62% since the recession. Absolutely. And again, when Simon Coveney introduced the rent pressure zone legislation in December 2016, what we said very clearly is that legislation allowed for in Dublin, in, in Cork, in Galway, etc., a 12.5% rent increase over three years. Now, no average worker... Uh, but that, that was only in the big cities. And that, that's only in the big cities and the commuter belts. But my point is, even there, nobody's earning a, a 12.5% increase in, in wages over those three years. And of course, outside the rent pressure zones, we said uh, that was just an incentive for people to jack up rent. And that's why we've seen, for example, in Louth and in a number of other counties, uh, Sligo is another one, the rent increases outside the rent pressure zones have been dramatic. We tabled amendments at that stage to say, don't do it this way. Link rent reviews in the private rental sector to the consumer price index. At the time, that would have meant that rent increases would have been about 0.1%. Uh, now they'd be a little bit above that. So it would have made it much, much more manageable. And here's the problem. In my own constituency here in Dublin Midwest, in Condorca, Lucan, uh, to rent an average two-bedroom, three-bedroom family home now, it's in excess of 2,000 to 2,200 euros. Like a family on an income of 50 or 60,000 euros a year couldn't afford that, let alone a lower-income family, uh, never mind a family who are reliant on, for example, the housing assistance payment or, or the rental accommodation scheme. And again, what happened when we proposed those amendments to legislation back in December 2016? Fianna Fáil lined up with Fianna Gael uh, and they voted through the rent pressure zone. And now you have Fianna Fáil criticising the government for the failure of the legislation that they themselves supported. So what we need is all of the opposition. The opposition have a majority in the top. Right? Fine Gael are a minority party. They can only continue with their failed housing policies that are pushing more families and children into homelessness with the support of Fianna Fáil. We need all of the opposition to unite and say very, very clearly uh, a change has to happen. And there's an initiative which is going to take place uh, in, in the early weeks of the new dual term where a range of opposition parties have come together to say budget 2019 has to mark a change, both in terms of capital investment and policy direction. But can you, can you, can you make that count? Well, we can, I suppose, if, if all of the opposition will side with us. And what that means is two things. But the, the noises from Fianna Fáil already are that they're going to support the government beyond, and, and, beyond this budget. And, and they will have to explain that. But what I'm hearing from Fianna Fáil is two things. On the one hand, they're saying that they want this to be a housing budget. They're not telling us what that means or, or how much money it would require or whatever. But there's no point saying you want a housing budget, but continuing to support the kind of budget Fine Gael have put in place. And if you listen to Pascal Donoghue in the, in the summer economic statement, the amount of additional capital investment that the government is proposing is, is nowhere close to what is required. They're saying maybe an extra 200 million uh, for social housing uh, uh, next year and nothing particularly for affordable housing. That's just not acceptable at a time when we have uh, you know, over 10,000 people, over 4,000 children in emergency accommodation and a growing number of working families, some on a social housing waiting list, many not on social housing waiting lists, unable to access rental or purchase accommodation despite being in insecure and well-paid jobs. Are you- so, so the opposition has to decide 
are they with the government or are they not? And if they're not, then we can work together to deliver a real change in, in housing policy. And will that not bring the government down? Well, in, in some senses, that's a matter for, for the government. I mean, if, if Leo Varadkar really believes Owen Murphy is doing a good job, uh, and if he really and you, believes... you don't. I mean, you guys are talking about tabling a motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy. Uh, it, it is one of the matters under consideration from the Oireachtas team over the couple, next couple of weeks. But I'm more interested in securing a change in policy. So if I thought we could get the government to change policy in the budget, then that would be my focus. My difficulty is this. I've spent two years as the housing spokesperson for the party. I have probably produced more detailed policy documents, proposed alternatives submitted to government than anybody else. Uh, we have we are the only opposition party who provide very detailed, fully costed alternative budgets full with uh, capital spending plans. And how quickly, how quickly can you solve the housing crisis? I mean, because, for example, you're not going to find builders at this moment in time. You can't get a builder for love nor money. Well, the, the, here's the problem. Here in Dublin, for example, if you walk, walk around the city, there's an enormous amount of construction activity taking place. But it's all high-end luxury student accommodation or, or hotels. Or so office, blocks. Builders, office blocks. Office blocks bu- as well. But, but they're building the wrong things. Uh, and they're building things that aren't at this point in time what we require, for example, for a healthy society and a healthy economy. And you're right, there are labour shortages. There's no doubt about that. And we have never said that the housing crisis could be fixed overnight. The problem is Fine Gael are continuing over the last two years the same failed policies that they, they had in the two years before that and the same failed policies Fianna Fáil had during the boom times. So, can I tell you, would it take two years, four years, six years? It will take all of that. But if you double capital investment, if you reduce the amount of time to deliver social affordable housing, uh, and if you took emergency measures to prevent the flow of families into homelessness, you would see within a short time the beginnings of an improvement. And I think that would give people confidence to say, now we're on the right track, let's push forward. If after every report on rents, on house prices and homelessness shows things are going in the wrong direction, if you do what Owen Murphy did two days ago and come on RT and say every indicator shows the government policy is working, what that shows is you just don't understand what's going on around you. They also said that uh, 10,000 homeless doesn't tell us any more than 9,000. Well, it does. It tells us that government policy is failing. Uh, uh, now, I mean, it's really important to remember behind every figure there are real families. We have uh, mothers with children living for two years in emergency accommodation. We have a significant increase in pension homelessness. Can you believe it? People in their 60s and early 70s in emergency accommodation. Uh, We have a lot of of issues around single-person homelessness. Uh, So we need to remember the the human reality behind all of this. Are you you concerned? When when Owen Murphy gets up and says 10,000 doesn't tell us anything more than 9,000, what a blasé, complacent attitude. And are you, are you concerned? Something. Are you concerned, Deputy, with this sale of, of mortgages to vulture funds is only going to add to this problem? I, I absolutely am. And, and the, the, the biggest group of families at risk at the moment are rental families because the banks seem to be repossessing and then selling on buy-to-let properties quicker than they are. But like, if you have almost 50,000 uh, primary uh, home dwellings and buy-to-let properties in, in mortgage distress of over two years... And as property prices increase, there's a huge incentive for whoever owns those properties to sell them to to make some profit. And if the banks, rather than dealing with the individual homeowners, are flipping them on to vulture funds, well, what will the vulture funds do? Their business model is not to hold on to that asset, let somebody pay a rent at a lower level over the lifetime, but is to wait till it's more advantageous and sell them on. And here's what's really criminal. Those funds are buying those properties from the banks at substantial discounts. Many of the families living in those properties could afford mortgages at those substantial discounts. So if the government said to the banks, we are forcing you in the first instance to offer that property 
at that discount to the family living in it to see if they could have a sustainable mortgage before selling it on to the vulture fund at that discount. I think you'd find very, very many of those properties would become sustainable. But again, uh, and Peter McFerry said this on News Talk this morning, he may have said it on your show previously, government has to decide, are they on the side of the big institutional investors, the vulture funds and the banks, or are they on the side of ordinary families, many of whom are working, uh, uh, but who cannot keep a roof over their heads? That's a clear choice that uh, Owen Murphy uh, and Lou Veratra have to take. And so far, they've taken the side of the vulture funds and the banks to the detriment of tens of thousands of families and 4,000 children currently in emergency accommodation. Deputy Owen O'Brien, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and the party spokesman on housing, planning and local government. We thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back after this. Michael Michael Reid on LMFM. And our text number is 086 one eight hundred six five eight oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. And Marie Cairns will be in with us a little later in the program to discuss your comments on everything from I'm sure the papal visit is still getting comments, but also the homelessness crisis. You heard us talking to Deputy Ono Brin there before the break, and yesterday we had Father Peter McVerry on the program. Now this week is back to school week, and for one school just outside Dundalk, it is a very special week because Farhard National School has reopened as Farhard Community National School, and Pat O'Shaughnessy is there to get an. Taste of the excitement uh, and the excitement that is building as the school reopens. Good morning to you, Pat. Good morning to you, Carl. Tell us a little bit. This is a great day for the area, isn't it? Without a shadow of doubt, over the last few days, I've been driving by and picking up little snippets as people talk to me. Indeed, over the last few weeks, there was huge excitement, some trepidation, uh, um, a lot of excitement and predominantly anticipation as to what was going to transpire when this morning actually arrived. And the, the the parents who decided to take their children back here were really, really buoyed up. But this morning when they came here and they saw the school resplendent, I called yesterday to speak to the principal, Jackie McCusker, and the work that was going on inside in the school, even that in itself would buoy you up to see the, the new look of the school, to see how bright it was uh, in anticipation of the new students arriving this morning. And the parents, I have to say, <laughs> it was extraordinary. People were telling me the soul was back in the parish. The heartbeat of the parish was pumping again. You could see the joy in their faces. You could see the smiles on their, on their, on their faces. And you could see the tears in their eyes. And there was grown men here with tears in their eyes. It just meant so much to them, the passion that they have for the parish, the passion that they have for their fellow parishioners, and to see their, their, their kin, their children, back where they belong. And many, many of whom probably went to the school themselves. And, you know, that, that is the thing. You know, the heritage that is here, the football teams that have been built out of the school, the community activities that have been built out of the school, there was a fear that maybe that was lost. But no, it's not. It's a new beginning. It's a new birth. All of that is back here this morning. And from, you know, people older than myself to the very young mothers, two young children here, two juniors, first day ever at school, into the new the doors here this morning. It was extraordinary. Really was one of those moments. She had never not had them. There been a few marriages out of that as well over the years. Yeah. <laughs> La- later in life, of course. Later in life. Oh, la- la- later in life, without a doubt. But, you know, above all, above all, the thing to take was the, just the excitement of the children going into their new school, you know, a pride of place. And I know from uh, my own children go to a rural school. Rural schools have this, you know, this 
special bond, you know, the mixed schools by and large, and to see them looking at each other, heading through the door of what was their school. And there was a lovely, lovely ceremony. We'll be talking to Fiona Kinlan, she's director of schools LMETB shortly. But she addressed the crowd. She, she was in a beautiful, humble everyday speech um, in everyday language and then there was a, a flag raising ceremony with the children and with the teachers and as I said tears and smiles all around and just to give you a little sample like it's it's difficult uh, when you haven't been here to sample what it was like and to see those people you know with full of trepidation full of excitement and um, here's a little sample of what some of the parents said to us earlier this morning. Hey, what does it mean for you this morning new beginning? It means everything. We are very lucky as a community to have LMETB as the patron of the school. The kids are excited. We've got new teachers. The classrooms have all been updated. We've got new resources, new equipment. We feel very lucky. A new beginning. A new beginning, absolutely. Really excited for the future of Forward School. And the children seem quite happy that I've come here this morning as well. They are so excited. It's like all their Christmases have come at once. Today is a day of celebration and it's a day of healing and it's just fantastic for the children, the parents and the community. Uh, Somebody said to me this morning the soul is back in the parish. It absolutely is. This is the heartbeat of the community. Yeah, it's back and ticking. And to see all the children coming together with happy faces this morning. It touches your heart, yes. We waited that long and fought for it, yeah. To credit to everybody that fought for it. Uh, and a new beginning, really. That's it, yeah. We start all over again. Hey, folks, I see uh, a, a granny and a mam leaving off uh, children to the school. What's it like brilliant, to be back? Brilliant, absolutely delighted. Uh, it means a lot for the parish, I'm sure. Absolutely, bring everybody together again. Great hour together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what does it mean for you having the school open again? It gives me a happy heart. Mm. It really does. It makes me quite upset. Mm. Um, we fought so long for it. Um, our kids are happy to come back. It means so much for the community. Um, it pulls us together again. And clearly, Pat, I mean, so much credit must go to the community for this and to the Low the Mead Education and Training Board. And on it in a minute, we're going to talk uh, to them and also to Jackie McCusker, the principal, who has brought all the staff and teachers and pupils and everybody together. And you do get a sense that this is a community. This is generations of families coming together and, and to celebrate the reopening of their school. Without a doubt, Cahill. And you can't hide that raw emotion. And that's why I thought it was important. You know, there were nervous here this morning, uh, you know, with this new beginning. They were quite nervous. But I thought it was important, you know, to let the people hear how excited they were, what that heritage meant to them. And you heard it in that last mum there, just overcome with emotion, overcome with joy that their parish is back and their parish is beating again. And you mentioned uh, Fiona Kinlan there. I'm going over to her now. She's the director of schools for LMETB here at this new beginning at Ford. I Like I said to everybody, Fiona, a good news day. It's a fantastic day for Loudmead Education and Training Board and for the people here in the community of Fahard. And thanks for providing us with the opportunity, Pat, to speak with you this morning. We're thrilled. We have smiling, happy faces heading in on their first day here at Fahard Community National School. And it's really a day of celebration. And for us in Loudmead Education and Training Board, today is all about the young people who have walked through the doors. This is what we do in Loudmead Education and Training Board. We're the largest comprehensive provider of education services from primary to post-primary and further education in the Louth and Meath region. And we're now adding to our over 12,000 students and 2,000 staff um, across Louth and Meath. 
So it's our 21st school. Uh, we're delighted to welcome um, the parents, the students, the staff, the wider community, and also I think the grandparents here this morning because one lady said to me on Tuesday night when we welcomed them to the school for our open evening, she said just around this time, 50 years ago, she brought her first son to the school and she was coming back this morning with her grandchild. So it's very special and we're very, very excited about working in partnership with the management staff and with the community of Farhart going forward. And the first in County Loud, um, you know, there was, there was superb interest, by the way, I understand, uh, in the teaching posts and in the principal. And in uh, Jackie McCusker, you have um, a teacher who has come here as principal with nine years, I understand, of a deputy principal experience behind her. That's right, Pat. In Loudsmead Education and Training Board, we set very, very high standards for our schools and our focus is in a high quality teaching and learning experience for all. And we were blown away by the huge interest in the principal position and the teaching positions at the school. And after a very lengthy recruitment process, uh, we were delighted to announce the appointment of Jackie McCusker as a teaching principal at the school. And Jackie has, as you've said, nine years deputy principal um, experience um, at another local primary school. And so Jackie brings great insights into leadership and management of a school. She has a huge interest in school self evaluation which will lend itself very well to uh, planning and review and moving the school forward and she also um, is a big supporter of embedding digital technologies into teaching learning and assessment and has a huge interest in coding initiatives also. Uh, and, and coding is where it is in the future without a shadow of doubt and lastly I mean your own role Fiona. My own role going forward, for the last few weeks I've been on site here coordinating all of the works and the recruitment process and the enrolment process for the school. But as Director of Schools, I have um, 16 post-primary schools. We now have two community national schools, a Centre for European Schooling. And with my colleague in the further education and training end of LMHV, we have two PLC colleges. So my role very much now going forward is working with Jackie, who will now become a member of our 54-strong deputy uh, principal and principal team across the, the two counties. And I will be very much working with Jackie on leading teaching and learning um, with a big focus on governance and management and accountability. Um, I'll be overseeing recruitment with Jackie and really, I suppose, sitting down to look at phase two of the renovation works and the plans and the expansion for the school. We have huge plans for for her community national school and look for going forward this is just the start there are really really good times to come so Mila Boekas Armagen August Gunairi Antaliv Golair Sinskol Unshaw a Fahard in you and fabulous words there Fiona thank you very much indeed and we do wish you that success going forward as well so Carl really you know Sometimes we say the current affairs programmes, all we ever talk about is bad news. You couldn't get a better news story than this this morning here at Ford. And thank you very wasn't, much. There wasn't a little tear in your own eye there, Pat, was there? There was very close to it, I have to say. There's certainly got a frog in my throat. Well, it was lovely to be here. And thank you very much for talking to us here this morning. It has been a wonderful joyous occasion. We'll awake to you as well. That's Paolo Shocknessy there at the reopening of Forward Community National School and well done to everybody concerned with that. We'll be back with the headlines after this break. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. Cahill Dervin sitting in for Michael. 086-1800-658 is our text number. 086-1800-658. Text and WhatsApp applies on that number. We're also available at LMFM Radio on Twitter and across Facebook and Instagram. And Marie will be joining us in the near future with some of your comments and texts on matters of today and indeed some of the issues that were raised on the programme yesterday. Now, as you'll have heard on the news headlines today is the UN International Day of the Victims of Enforced Disappearance. And to mark the day, the Irish Council of Civil Liberties has called on the state to ensure that family members of children who are forcibly disappeared, either through forced adoption or unidentified burials whilst in institutional care, are given information about the children's faith and whereabouts. To tell us more about this, we're joined on the line by Liam Herrick, who's the Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Good morning to you, Liam. Good morning, Carl. Liam, this is very much a subject that came to light again over the weekend when the Pope said that he didn't know a huge amount about the tomb, mother and baby's home. And, and I think that's one of the particularly central issues to all of this. That's right. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why we felt it was important to mark the occasion in, in this particular year, because there's been a lot of focus, I think, over the last week on the role of the church and church institutions. And the government has certainly put some pressure on the church. And we've seen the letter from the Minister for Children, Catherine Zappone, to the Pope, where she has called on the church to step up and meet its obligations. But I suppose from an international human rights perspective, uh, the core issue here is that state legal obligations. And it is the state that is party to international law, and it is the state that has certain duties. And yes, there may very well be an issue of the state needing to enforce that duty against private parties, in this case, religious institutions and so on. But ultimately, the state has certain obligations to, first of all, um, take all measures to disclose the identity of children who were disappeared, who uh, were detained arbitrarily and proper records were not kept of those children, um, to also return the remains of those children where possible to their families, to conduct full public investigations of the circumstances which surrounded their detention, their forced adoption or their death, uh, and also to take measures to ensure that these things can't happen in the future. And whereas Ireland has made some progress in addressing the past recently, um, we still have very serious outstanding problems. Just to, to look at Tume again for a second, Liam, do we know exactly, uh, I know the figure's over 700, but will we ever get a final figure, do you think? Well, I mean, I think we really are all grateful to the work that Catherine Corliss, as a as a volunteer historian, has done in trying to get to the bottom of what happened. But uh, there are 796 names of children uh, who seem to have uh, been died and, and buried as Tomb. Um, but there are other institutions as well, of course. You know, it's not just about Tomb. And I think, again, when we when we look at this from an international perspective, I think it may, maybe helps us understand the full gravity of what's happened in, in Ireland. Um, under international human rights law, enforced disappearances relate to when people are detained and then the state refuses to disclose information about them. And if it's widespread or systemic, as would seem to be the case in Ireland, when we look at the number of children that were detained in these institutions, then it can se- um, separate, amount to against humanity. They were separated from their mothers. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. That's right. And It's also important to bear in mind that this is an ongoing human rights violation when we still have families that do not have full identity about their origins where people don't have a statutory right to access their birth certificate or the file relating to their adoption when we know that the state has not disclosed that information and the private adoption agencies have suppressed or in many cases lied to people about their origins and i think it's also interesting that you know this is an international issue there are other countries that have faced similar problems of this nature at the moment uh, spain is looking at its history of forced and illegal adoptions and there are criminal proceedings going on in that country um if we look at scotland there are criminal investigations going on at present in relation to what happened in orphanages in scotland historically where mass graves have been discovered there and also in countries like argentina and chile the issue of forced illegal adoptions has also led to public inquiries and criminal proceedings so we're not alone in this uh, there are other experiences we can learn from what would you like the government uh, and indeed perhaps the church to do now Well, I think our focus is primarily on the government in this. Um, it may very well be that the government has to take measures to compel the church to cooperate. And whereas Bishop Eamon Martin made some positive statements over the weekend, and he he did very helpfully point out the fact that in Northern Ireland, for example, um, persons who are adopted do have greater rights to information about their adoption and their birth than is the case in the south. I think that was very helpful. But the primary issue here is for the state, and specifically with regard. To to Chum and similar uh, locations like that there needs to be a full investigation of the deaths of those who died there and the circumstances of their death that will mean exhumation of remains where possible uh, identification of the remains where possible and also making those remains available to the families of the deceased for respectful burials this is set out clearly in international law i think going away from the question of those that died to those that were adopted there needs to be a statutory right to information about your birth and about your early life and there is a bill currently before the Oireachtas on this but the bill in its current form certainly wouldn't meet the necessary standard um 
there's also, I think, other steps the state could take now if we're really serious about addressing these problems. And there's been very positive statements by the Taoiseach and the Minister for Children in the last week. I think this is a good moment to grasp it. We could ratify the International Treaty on Disappearances and show that we are committed to meeting our international obligations. And we could also publish a report that has been commissioned by the Minister for Children, which sets out the human rights obligations on the state. So, you know, this is a good moment to start getting our house in order. It's time to put action on those words, isn't it? It is. But I mean, you know, progress is being made. And in fairness, you know, with the establishment of the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes, um, some very positive things have come out of that. You know, we've had the excavations at Chum. Uh, we, we have had some information come into the public light, but, but not enough. You know, we, we need to go further now. I think what's encouraging is that for many years, there was a reluctance in Ireland to appreciate the scale and the gravity of what had happened in the past. I think we've moved a long way from that. If you look at the demonstrations in Dublin last weekend at the Stand for Truth rally, if you look at the amount of people that turned up in Tume, mainly local people, for the vigil at the site of the orphanage and the mother and baby home um, just last week, I think you have an indication that our society is a different place now. There is an appetite there to deal with the difficult past and I think that the government should show leadership on this. You said in your press release, Liam, that, you know, and you might explain this to me, Galway County Council conducted a straw poll as to what should be done in the Chim case. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, I mean, what happened is that the excavations which were carried out in the direction of the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes um, endorsed and vindicated what Catherine Corliss had been saying, that there were a significant number of babies buried at that site. And, of course, we need to remember that when Catherine Corliss first said this, the orders and the authorities uh, denied and undermined her. So I think that's the first thing we need to recognise here. She she was ridiculed in some quarters. She was. She was. um, And uh, she was accused of fabricating something and, and hugely exaggerating what had happened. In fact, she was completely vindicated. And in fairness, you know, the history of the last 20 years in Ireland is that any time somebody has tried to identify the scale of what happened in the past, the first response has been to ridicule them. So we deserve, you know, Catherine Cordes is, is the real hero in this piece, but the Commission of Investigation did subsequently carry out excavations at the site, which confirmed that, that she was right, there was a significant number of, of bodies buried there. Um, what happened then was that... Uh, the government and Galway County Council decided to consult with the locals about what should happen. And I mean, whereas it is appropriate to consult with the locals um, about how you would do what needs to be done, there can be no obscuring what needs to be done. And I think, you know, having a straw poll about whether there should be exhumations or not is missing the point that there is a legal obligation on the state that it has to take all measures possible to identify the remains of bodies that are found in such circumstances. And if it is possible to identify remains, they should be handed over to their uh, families for respectful burial. And I think that was a difficulty with the consultation process. It seemed to suggest that if people didn't want to go about that exercise, that perhaps it mightn't happen. Now, I think if you look at Catherine Zappone's letter to the Pope, which has been made, made publicly available, um, I think you do see a heavy emphasis on the need to address the dignity of those that died. And I think I would read into that, that I think there is an increasing acceptance by the government that 
exhumation of remains is necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, the commission, uh, the, the minister also commissioned Geoffrey Shannon, the special rapporteur on children's rights, to advise the government about its obligations in this regard. And when that report becomes available, it may very well also make clear that the state doesn't have a choice in this. The state has to exhume the, the remains and it has to try to achieve a respectful burial of those that can be identified. It's obviously technically quite complicated because of the passage of time, but that doesn't mean that we don't take all measures possible to address it. The effort. Liam Herrick, Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, on today, UN International Day of the Victims of Enforced Disappearances, we thank you for your time. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin, 086-1800-658 is our text number. And Marie will be in with us very shortly to go through your texts and comments on the issues raised today and indeed over the course of the week here on the Michael Reed Show. Now, you'll have heard us talking earlier about uh, rent increases, house price increases, cost of living increases with one group. Who are now threatening strike action in a pay dispute with the HSE is the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. And joining us on the line is Tony Fitzpatrick, who is Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO. Tony, good morning to you. Good morning, Cahill. Tony, industrial action is never an easy option for a group of workers to consider. But tell us why, in this instance, the nurses are, are driven to this. Well, at this stage, we've clearly put the ball into the Minister of Finance Court, Pascal Donoghue, with regards to dealing with this issue. Um, nurses were told when the last uh, public service stability agreement was agreed last summer, um, there was clear provisions in that agreement that outlined that issues affecting uh, nurses and midwives, which were mainly around recruitment and retention and the difficulties around recruiting nurses and the difficulties retaining those nurses within the Irish healthcare system. It's important to remember that there are 2,000 less nurses in the healthcare system than there were in 2007. And that's because during the crash years, um, you know, 5,000 nursing positions weren't filled. Um, so we have a key crisis at the moment trying to come back to the levels we were at in 2007. Um, and as it stands presently, there are plans to expand capacity, to implement slant care, etc. And none of that is possible if we don't have nurses and midwives within the service to open those beds. So as it stands currently, as part of that agreement, the Public Service Pay Commission were to examine the issues affecting nursing and midwifery. They were to issue a report in May of this year, which wasn't issued. We were told it'd be issued at the end of July. It wasn't issued. We were told we'd have it by the end of August, and therefore we expect it this week or next week. Um, and we're saying to the Minister, we've waited long enough for this report. We've waited long enough for the government to address the recruitment and retention crisis, which Simon Harris has openly admitted is a key problem within the health service. Um, And we're saying to the Minister, we have a special delegate conference on the 26th of September and the ball is in his court. He must come forward now with appropriate pay proposals that address the recruitment and retention crisis in nursing. I'm looking at a report in one of the papers this morning where Simon Harris has admitted the health sec- sector has a problem holding on to its staff. I'm sure like school teachers, your, your members are being, are being tempted to work abroad at this moment in time by higher wages, better working conditions. Absolutely, and they're, they're being tempted. Um, in the past, it might have been the new entrants. So it might have been the students coming out of college um, where the NHS or Australia and Canada were meeting them in the colleges and saying, don't go work in the Irish healthcare system. You can come work with us. You'll be paid more. You'll work less hours. And we'll give you clear postgraduate education opportunities uh, within our systems within within a year or two years. 
Um, that that was a key problem. And there's no what we see now is that students may be taking a post post qualification in Ireland for four to six months, and then they're going overseas. But now nurses that are in the system for 10 years and 12 years and 15 years are now looking to those opportunities overseas and taking up posts in those locations. And the key problem is that when we met our submissions at Public Service Pay Commission, Irish nurses work longer hours uh, than than any other nurses working uh, throughout the world. Our nurses in this country who have uh, a level 8 uh, degree entry level if you compare them to other grades like physios and OTs, etc., they work less hours than nurses and they get paid a starting pay of about 7000 more than a nurse. Um, and that's the reality. Well, what is the starting pay for a nurse at the moment, Tony? It's, it's 28000 So 28000 for a level 8 graduate. Um, when you consider that they'll pay 60% of that back to the state and PRSI and tax, etc., is 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 a very difficult wage for them to survive on, and and there's a number of things. There's healthcare systems that work within the the the, the healthcare system as it currently exists. They report to nurses, and nurses delegate to them and are responsible for the work they do. Yet the nurse will have to hit the fifth point on the pay scale before they pass out the HCA pay. So that's at one end, and then on the other end, the graduates coming out to physio and OT the Allied Health Professionals, as they're called, they graduate and immediately they earn 7,000 more uh, than a nurse. Yet the entry requirements and the level A qualification are the same. So what we're saying is the graduates coming out at the same level should be paid the same within the healthcare system. And remember that as well as those Allied Health Professionals being paid 7,000 more than the nurse starting out, uh, they work less hours than the nurse. Is that not a 25% increase, though? Well, the, the, what we have been highlighting is that we have a crisis within our health, and everyone knows this, right? So we have a trolley crisis. And to be fair, you guys, you, your members are in the front line. You're the ones getting getting it in the neck. Absolutely. So we have we have a crisis, a trolley crisis. We have a capacity crisis. We have lack of facilities within the community to care for people and in step down facilities, and also within the community. So what, what we're clearly saying to the government is two thousand less nurses than we had in two thousand and seven. The health service and the demands on the health service have grown significantly in that period. The demographic changes and the CSO data show us that the reliance and the need for health care is going to increase. So therefore, they need to take action now to stem the tide of nurses leaving the system as it currently exists, but also to build the service and lay a foundation. And I think Pascal Donoghue needs to understand this, that this, this is not just about nurses' terms and conditions and arresting the the flood of nurses out of the system as it currently presents, this is an opportunity for him to lay the foundation where they can increase the bed capacity of the health service, where they can introduce this long-to-care report and ensure we have primary care services. Because if he doesn't do that, we've had a lost decade as it stands at the moment, we're heading into the next 20 years of a health crisis that's only going to deepen. So he's an opportunity now to engage with the nursing unions to look at the issues that are affecting nurses to deal with the pay issue because the pay every other measure has been attempted we've we've tried to bring them home from overseas and that hasn't worked worked because it's not attractive and um, we have tried all the other measures with regards to flexible working and all of that but it hasn't worked the key issue that needs to be addressed is pay and they have to address that now 
or else we're heading into a lost decade again with regards to a crisis within our health service. Very briefly to finish, Tony, do you expect nurses to go on strike? Well, the ball with regards to that is firmly in Pascal Donoghue's court. And I think the government and indeed Fianna Fáil as part of the confidence and supply agreement must realise that there's a great opportunity here. There is a line within the public service stability agreement that says any awards to nurses will not result in any other knock-on claims from other grades with regards to relativity. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a government, for Pascal Donoghue and Simon Harris, and indeed the confidence and supply agreement to solve this issue. And if they don't, well, then we won't be found wanting with regards to what's required on our side to force this issue home. Tony Fitzpatrick, Director of Industrial Relations with the INMO, we thank you for your time this morning. Now, Dunshockton is a community and a village in mourning this week after the tragic death in Moldova of 15-year-old Marius Bors. Marius and his family lived in Dunshockton until very recently uh, when they moved on to Ashburn and Marius and his family were back home in Moldova on a family holiday. Unfortunately, Marius was in a car driven or with his father when the car was struck side on and Marius died. His mother and siblings were in a car behind and witnessed the accident. It has been a tragic story and last night in the Chocolate Community College a very special gone home ceremony was held to remember and to honour the life of 15-year-old Marius Bors. Before we came on air I spoke to Michal Brennan who's a leader with the Dunshockton Scouts, a man who's seen Marius grow from a Cub Scout all the way up to the Venture Scout movement and Michal very kindly joined us this morning to pay his own tribute to Marius. Michal, there's a profound sense of loss around in Shockton, uh, but particularly amongst the scouting community. Um, absolutely, as you can imagine, um, Marius had been a part of the seven Eastern Shockton Scouts family since he was in Cubs. So obviously we have Cubs that started about age eight. He'd moved on, he'd progressed through the sections into Scouts and he joined Ventures back in September and we actually, I, I was one of a group of leaders who took him and some other Ventures to uh, Jamboree in Scotland, a place called Blair Attle over the summer, actually just last month. And Marius really came out of himself on that trip, didn't he? He really did, I'd say. Um, he really became everyone, as we say, everyone has a niche, and we got to know him better. He was, you know, because I suppose, as they say, the old saying goes, you only know someone when you live with them. Mm. So he smiled, he was happy, he enjoyed it. He was a real, I'd say, he lived life to the full. And for his fellow his fellow venture scouts, I mean, this, this was a, a young boy that they grew up with. I mean, they, they, they lived their lives with Marius, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. As you could see, we had a huge turnout at the Gone Home ceremony last night from St. Jackman's National School, where he attended, and Dunshockton Community College, where he also attended. And as you can imagine, and I'm sure you know yourself, Dunshockton is quite a small community, so people tend to, especially they're involved with everything, everyone goes through school together. And also, I mean, Marius had just sat his junior certificate. He, he was uh, one of those students awaiting the results. So, I mean, for the students in the college, it's a devastating blow. It's an absolute devastation. And, uh, you know, as I say, it's quite, it's, it's very hard to believe. It's almost surreal at this moment just to be, I say, saying. But like I said, the school were extremely supportive. Um, and just to pay thanks to um, Mr. Shane Foley and Miss Vera Prendergast. Uh, Miss uh, Vera spoke extremely eloquently last night at the, the ceremony. And it was a very moving ceremony. It was also a great tribute to Marius, wasn't it? It was. It celebrated. It celebrated life. It celebrated his life. And there were, you know, we had some of our own youth members. Our ventures came up and spoke and told their own memories of Marius, um, from whether it was in scouts or whether it was in 
Cubs or whether it was in Ventures and a lot of nice memories came out especially about our trip to Scotland over the summer and I know as well for Jerry O'Connor who's involved so heavily in the community Jerry Marius was with Jerry in the football academy there in the community college all those years ago and, and this was a this was a, a young boy who loved life wasn't it absolutely he lived life to the full um, I mentioned last night that he did um talked about one of the activities he did was canyoning and in Scotland which is a quite an extreme activity and I just remember him giving, when I asked him how was it at the time he gave me a thumbs up and a smile and that says it all about how much he loved that Gone home it was a beautiful way to pay tribute to a beautiful young life Absolutely Michal thank you so much for that and that was Michal Brennan, leader with Dunshockland Scouts. Our sympathies to everybody involved, but particularly to Marius's family. Marius Bors, 15 years of age, was killed in a car crash in Moldova and last night in Dunshockland, the community college, paid tribute to his life along with the Dunshockland Scouts and to everybody who was involved in that. It was a very fitting tribute to a very young life lost so tragically. We'll be back after this. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Now, very recently, councillors across the northeast region in Louth and Meath got an invite from Irish Water, which said, Irish Water wish to invite you to take a tour of the construction site of the Staline Water Treatment Plant and Pipeline Project. The visit will show progress of the works on the pipeline of the project. If you remember... Last summer, the summer of 2017, will be always remembered as the summer of the water crisis in Drogheda. €19 million Euros is being spent on the upgrade at Stellene and that visit took place, I believe, last week. Joining me in studio is Councillor Joanna Byrne, who's a Sinn Féin councillor on Louth County Council. And on the phone is Councillor Nick Killian, independent councillor on Meath County Council and a man who has campaigned for so many years on behalf of the residents in Rithoth in regard to their water problems. If I can start with you, Councillor Byrne, the invite came out of the blue? Um, I suppose it did, uh, Cahill, yes. Um, we do get regular emails from Irish Water, different notifications of water shortages, etc. And yeah, I suppose it did come out of the blue, the invite. Um, we took it up as a Sinn Féin team, three out of the four of us. One of my colleagues was on holidays, he couldn't make it, but three out of the four from the team in Drogheda so, turned up. So this invite was sent to all TDs and all councillors in Loud and me, Public and representatives. Yeah. Not a great turnout. There wasn't a great turnout. Um, initially, there was only the three members of Sinn Féin, but we were joined by Councillor Nick Killian from Mead and Councillor Frank Godfrey, who is the Mayor of Drogheda. Um, Imelda Munster was the only TD. Imelda Munster was the only TD, indeed. Yeah. For Loud or Mead? For Loud. And For the two constituencies. Yeah. A year ago, every politician in the area had something to say about the water. Oh, absolutely, yeah. A year down the road... I don't know. Look, I, I can't speak for anybody who wasn't there. Um, for me personally and, and for the Sinn Féin team, we made the effort to be there. And, and it was a, a worthwhile visit, I suppose, to see the project. Um, we got to see the pipe in different parts, the works that have already started, the, the water treatment plant and what's to come, I suppose. And the, the work is underway. It is underway, well underway, yeah. We were out on site at uh, different, different points of the site and got to see the work in action. Nick Killian, good morning to you. Good morning, Carl, and good morning, Joanna. Thank Were you. you surprised, first of all, Nick, at the low turnout? Absolutely. I was actually the only representative from County Mead there. I was the only county councillor. None of our TDs showed up, and there was every opportunity for them to be there. I'm sure some of them probably were on holidays, and had good reason. But I was quite surprised that from, say, the Ashburn Municipal District, 
the Rathope Municipal District and indeed the Slane East Meads District. That I was the only councillor there. But anyhow, that's that's uh, history now. And you stage. did you did see evidence that the work that was promised last year is going yeah. ahead and is and is progressing. Look, it's terrific. The work that's going on down there between Rough Grange and Staline in replacing the pipe that burst last year is absolutely terrific. But what really scared me about the whole visit was, and I'm sure Joanna would agree with me, is the fact that the condition of the present equipment. It is absolutely, you know, it's 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 rocking on finishing. That's the way it is at this point in time. And to quote one of the officials who was there with me, he basically said, Staline is so the supply is on a knife edge at all times. As we know, as we know I from what happened, I could not believe the state of the equipment. I mean, the equipment was put in probably somewhere in the region of the 1930s. Some of it, again, maybe in the 1940s and 50s. But it's absolutely collapsing. And I have to give great credit to the uh, to the personnel in Staline and Irish for keeping it going. It's it's like the uh, you know a bad engine in a car. They're 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 actually having to go now. There's no parts. They have to get parts made up just to keep it which going. Was, which was one of the problems last year, wasn't it? When the yeah, and it's the scary. And but what has left me so disappointed about the meeting was um, is the concern in relation to supply, continued supply in an ever-increasing housing situation where houses are being built. But what really annoyed me at the, uh, at the meeting was, and it has annoyed me all along, we were given an indication by Minister Owen Murphy that a pipe was going to be laid between Staline and Rathout and uh, the existing pipe replaced. There is not a hope in hell of that happening by 2021 at the earliest. And that's coming from senior officials who are there on the day. So the spin that's been put on it by Minister Murphy, you know, in his uh, lovely photograph that was taken there last summer, is admit. So the people of Rathout are still not guaranteed a supply, nor this, are the people of Ashburn or the people of East Mead. And this is the people of Rathout whose main street has been dug up all summer by... I- to facilitate water improvement, is it not? Yes, and to be fair, that's replacing ex- bad piping, existing piping that was falling apart in the village. And I'm delighted, I'm not complaining, I'm delighted that work is done and it's already made an improvement to the poor supply and poor pressure supply. I'm, I'm going to come back to Joanna for a second, Joanna, because you, you stumbled upon, uh, if that's not unfair to say to you, uh, a problem in regard to Drada? Yeah, um, I suppose it was uh, upon querying, um, I'd be a bit of a maths geek, and it was upon querying the numbers, um, the capacity of water that they export on a daily basis. And they gave us the figures that they export 1,250 square cubes an hour, which is 30,000 square cubes of water a day. And just following on from that, we kind of said, you know, and, and what's the increased capacity going to be to be upon completion? And, and, and they all shook their heads and looked and said, um, well, it won't be much more than that. And, and then we went so on. So this to, is going to replace like with like. Effectively. Absolutely. You know, don't get me wrong. Um, and let me categorically state that the work that that's happening. Yeah, it's an improvement. It's badly needed. It's warmly welcomed. It can't happen quick enough. But with 5,000 houses already planned for construction in the northern environment of Drogheda alone, leading to a, a population increase probably of twelve to 15,000 people, it's obvious that the water demand is going to dramatically increase in years to come without further residential expansion or any commercial expansion that may follow as well. So while it, while it is needed and, 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 and welcomed, it's not going to be fit for purpose to serve the population the increase. Population. Now, I was at a city status meeting last night and listened to Dr. Brian Hughes state that Drogheda is growing at three times the national growth figures, third only to Dublin and Cork. Now, put that into perspective. Dublin and Cork are our two main cities and Drogheda is growing 
at a rate next to that. And, and we haven't got the water infrastructure to support that. And so. for you, Nick Hillian, in, in Rathout and Ashburn and that, in that part of the country, presumably if the demand on Stellene from the Drogheda area increases, the demand is also going to increase. We're seeing building all over your, your part of the world at the moment. That's, well, going, to, that's, that, that's going to lead to more problems in your part. Well, there's currently, if you take the thoughts alone, there's um, 700 houses due to be built over the next five years. You take Ashburn, somewhere in the region of um, 1,500, as far as I know. In Dunshockland, where they have a water supply, there's 1,700 uh, houses. Uh, and and more on there, the way. And more on the way. So, the, you know, if, if you take what Joanna is saying in relation to Drogheda, and, you take, and that's leaving out you know, Donor, Jalique and other parts of Eastmead where development and also we've got to remember one-off rural housing, they're entitled to their supply as well. So well, we capacity do. is simply scary going forward. We do, we, we, we do Nick, uh, I'll come back in a second, we do have a statement from Irish Water and just as part of this says that Irish Water is working with the local authorities mm-hmm. responsible for the area supplied by Stellene and they have developed investment plans to ensure that the water supply has the ability to meet the future needs of those areas in terms of growth in line with the national planning framework. Did you get a sense of that at all last week, Nick? Absolutely not. And I was talking to, I mean, when you talk to staff on the ground and listen to what they have to say, you have officialdom on high, you have the spin machine coming out of um, Abbey Street where they're based, you know, who put out all these lovely messages, talking to the guys working there. They're telling us the truth. It's working, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a machine that's ready to break down any minute, even as it stands. So the sooner that what the equipment is there is replaced and at least keep the status quo going. But going forward, I'd have serious concerns for the town of Drogheda and for the whole area of uh, South East Mead. Joanne, just to finish with you, it says this statement, there are no capacity constraints with the water supply and the team are currently issuing positive responses to all connection inquiries and applications to the Saline plant. Clearly, from what both you and Councillor Killian uh, saw last week, this is an improvement. The water quality will be better. The supply will be more reliable. But your concern, and, and Councillor Killian has echoed this for his region, your concern is that when the population explodes, as it will do yeah. in the coming There's years... There's no compa- capacity restraints at the moment. But going forward, um, like they're relying on, on uh, the Shannon to Dublin pipeline project to, to take place and their intention is to pump water from North Dublin. And they told us that themselves. But um, there's not even a planning application lodge for that with Onboard Planala at the moment. So I, I it, it's a worrying revelation for what, me. What and, can you do next? And well, next, um, I suppose we, we have to start making the awareness of this out there. It has to be out there that that this is going to be a problem going forward. We need to work with the local authority who is they have an obligation to ensure that there's water infrastructure in place to to support any planning applications they're approving. This needs to be pushed at national level with central government and I'm sure Melda Munster our local TD will be taking that on board and I'd be urging any colleague, colleagues of ours on the council and indeed those in the Dáil to be pushing for pushing for this as well because Drogheda cannot grow to its full potential without future investment. And to you, Councillor Nick Killian, your, your final thoughts on this? My final thoughts, we have three government ministers in County Meath and they've got to get up off their backsides and start finding funding to develop the necessary infrastructure for all the houses that are going to be built for the people who want to live there. We've factories, we've, we've shires coming in with 440 people and the management there are, say, are asking us now, where are the houses? So with houses, you need water. As Joanna has rightly said, I don't want to, we don't want to be scary. Anybody, the con- what we have at present will supply the needs of the area. And will but be improved. In- 
and will be improved yeah. and needs to be improved faster than it is at the moment. Well, Councillor Nick Killian, Independent Councillor on Meath County Council and Councillor Joanna Byrne, Sinn Féin Councillor on Louth County Council. We thank you for once again talking about water. We're going to be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Last night at a meeting in County Roscommon, the Minister Dennis Nocton was forced to defend his government over the closure of 159 rural post offices when he said that the government does indeed have a commitment to rural Ireland. This came after CEO of Post David McRedmond asserted that his company has a very strong commitment to rural Ireland and that in spite of the 159 post offices which are closing, seven of them in County Meath and one of them in County Loud. An agreement was reached between the Postmasters Union and Unpost uh, that will see the 159 postmasters retire uh, on a voluntary basis. But of course, this has not been greeted with great welcome by many people across the country. Pat McCormack is the president of the Irish Creamy Milk Suppliers Association. Pat, good morning to you. Good morning, Colin. Good morning to your listeners. Your own reaction to this closure of 159 post offices in rural Ireland, Pat? Look, it's another 159 service centres, service hubs. Uh, that are closed in rural Ireland. Uh, you know, it's extremely disappointing. Um, you know, it's a third of that in, the, in the, the demise of rural Ireland. It's also broadening the gap, I suppose, between rural Ireland and urban Ireland. And, uh, you know, it's extremely disappointing. Um, obviously, the older generation can be significantly impacted by the, the closure of the post offices from a pension perspective. But, you know, it's a service that's gone out of rural Ireland and won't be replaced. And ultimately, you know, it's a... There was, there was huge potential within those post offices maybe to have a, a real analysis of where we were and they could be the hub of rural communications going forward. But regrettably for those 159 centres, that they, they, their notice is gone. Now, the government will argue that there were only 500 or less people living in those areas, that the, the, the post office alternative that has been offered to them is at most 15 kilometres, which is the goods of 10 miles away uh, in, old, in old money, as we say. Uh, but for many of those areas, as was highlighted uh, yesterday, it was the, the last remaining link with government. It certainly was, you know, the last remaining link. Uh, and also a significant impact on the economy of those areas where very often the use of the post office, post office um, or the provision of the post office made it viable for the shop to stay in business. Uh, you know, questions will be asked about the viability of rural shops now as a result of that closure. And that's that's disappointing. It's, it's another service gone, but as you rightly say, you know, it's the last link in a lot of areas uh, with the with the, the government. Uh, you know, the Garda Barracks will be closed, maybe the school is closed in the village. And now the post office, unfortunately, is the next victim of of this so-called progression. And it doesn't surprise me that Dennis Nocton had to try and defend it last night. It's very, very difficult to try and defend the indefendable. You described it in your press release, and it's a wonderful statement, the yawning infrastructure imbalance. Yes, indeed. You know, we see uh, the Lewis line in Dublin, uh, take, for example, there, costing millions of euros. And, you know, that's been further developed uh, with further routes on board. And at the same time, we see in rural Ireland basic services uh, being called into question and, you know, being downgraded and indeed in this case 159 post offices closed. You're, uh, not, so you're, not, you're not seeing the return of the Celtic Tiger, are you? Certainly once you drive out of Dublin and uh, come down the road 20 kilometres, uh, you're into a very, very different Ireland. Uh, you know, and rural Ireland uh, is unfortunately a very, very different place and we're seeing nothing only the closure of post offices, Garda Barracks, schools, you know, the basic infrastructure that's needed to stimulate and to bring to attract young people to, the, to an area. And we will firmly believe that if if these basic 
uh, services were in an area uh, and, you know, upgraded rather than downgraded and closed uh, to join the younger generations. And ultimately, you know, you'd see two teacher schools become four teacher schools and GA clubs be able to field their own team rather than the Malcolm S. You also referred in, in your press release to the, the issue of broadband rollout and, and that seems as far away as ever, doesn't it? It's rolling and it's rolling and it's rolling, but it doesn't seem to be making any progress. Um, you know, we're not any nearer to having broadband uh, for our rural people that they'd be in a position to walk from home. Uh, maybe, you know, because the inter- and as well as that, obviously, from a farming perspective, basic payment schemes and all that are online now and a lot of work has to be done online. And unfortunately, you know, you'll either have intermittent services or a very, very, very slow service. What sort of action can you, as the creamy milk suppliers, what can, what can you do about this, Pat? Look, we'll be meeting Minister Creed there next week and it'll be part of the agenda, obviously. There are pressing issues out there in rural Ireland, such as the fodder scheme and the uh, winter that's facing us. But certainly, you know, services for rural Ireland is a significant part of our brief as well. And we'll now be Minister Creed and indeed Minister Nocton on those uh, closures because, you know, a lifeline needs to be found for post offices. I accept that they can struggle to be a viable income unit on their own. But, you know, maybe if there was alternatives put into those post offices as well as the, the on-post service, that it could have a significant uh, contribution to make to rural Ireland. Well, Pat, we thank you for your time this morning. That's Pat McCormick, President of the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association, talking there about the closure of 159 rural post offices, seven in Meath, as we said yesterday, and one in County Louth. Marie Cairns, our listeners have been commenting on this. They have indeed, Cahill, and on lots of other stories that we've been covering today and over the past few days. But just sticking with the post office controversy, Anna from County Meath got in touch and she says that there just seems to be such a rural-urban divide in the government that it seems to be that the densely populated cities are getting all the perks. And when you look at rural areas, that uh, the post office really is the heart of the community. I suppose echoing what a lot of people have been saying and she says that by closing them down they really are taking away a vital lifeline. Uh, Another listener, Denise, was in touch on the same topic. Denise uh, said that what about those people who don't have cars and she says that she's thinking especially maybe of the older generation who aren't able to drive anymore and are reliant on their pensions and are reliant on the pensions and she says that if they have to to go like 10 miles and of course to the, their post office. And the government will tell you they can bank online, but of course if you live in rural Ireland, I don't live that far outside Dublin, and broadband is a figment of our imagination. Yes, and Denise also just added that for many people in isolated areas, sometimes the post office is the only person that they'll see if they go in or out. Like, it's much more than just a provision of services, that it can be a social outlet. And she says that that shouldn't be lost in the whole argument. So that's the story. But we also had, I suppose, on the flip side of it, uh, we had a phone call from Declan. And Declan just wanted to make the point, Carl, do you think that if the post offices were making money and were being supported, that they would be closed? And Post made a profit last year, Declan. But Declan is saying maybe Millions people, maybe maybe people in rural areas should look at how much they actually support the post. I office. don't have any issue whatsoever with the post office masters retiring, and good luck to all of them. They deserve their retirement, and so many of them have served us so well over the years. That doesn't mean the post office has to close. Well, that's the point that you raised yesterday. Uh, moving away from that then and to the housing situation, which is also occupying a lot of minds today, uh, Mairead from Drogheda says, listening to your interview there 
with um, the Sinn Féin representative. Sinn Féin have been talking about a no confidence motion in the housing minister for as long as I can remember over the last few months, says Mairead. And I'm just wondering, what are they waiting for? Are they waiting for more people to be on the streets before they actually do something and put the minister under pressure? It may be that the threat hanging over his head is greater than the actual implementation of the vote. Another listener, Grania, says, how can the government claim that the economy is on the up when there are 3,800 children in emergency accommodation, Cahill? It just makes me so mad. We pay taxes and I don't mind paying my taxes to look after those who are less fortunate. These children deserve better. It was just awful to hear you mention and it really brought it home to me when you mentioned about that there were children waking up today who maybe are returning to school who don't have their own home to live in and are in emergency accommodation. And that is true. It's sad, isn't it's, it? It's, it's going to be embarrassing for them. Never mind anything else. Going back to school with no address. Uh, another listener says uh, it was actually Seamus McDonough from the Workers' Party phoned in and Seamus says that everybody knows the reason for the housing problem, the reason for the housing problem and it's the lack of a public housing programme and he says that the council, he's from me, that the council are selling off land to private developers instead of building houses themselves and he mentions that on the 13th of September that uh, the Workers' Party are launching their public housing campaign in Meath. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Absolutely. Because it's certainly certainly needed. Um, Another listener, just on the reopening of Fahert School, uh, Jim from RD says it's great to hear about the school opening, but Jim is disappointed that the St. Bridget's name has been taken off the school. And that's just a point that he wants to make. However, we had Geraldine was on to us and Geraldine was saying she was delighted to hear the news of the opening. She says that she's no... No school going children at the moment, but all of her children had gone to Fahert School and that it would have been a terrible loss to the community if it had if it had remained closed and just delighted to hear that it has reopened and best of luck to everybody there. Uh, Mark from Navin, just going back to the housing again, Mark from Navin was saying Fianna Fáil put an affordable housing bill to the doll which would have eased the pressure on the rental sector and deliver affordable houses. But Sinn Féin joined with Fine Gael to vote against it so it's hard to listen to Sinn Féin criticise the government on their housing strategy says Mark from Navin. And we will be back to that subject I've no doubt even before the week is over. It's nearly over. The lottery winner didn't ring us. Not yet. No, if somebody, you hear who's won it, please let us know. Jordan Londis in Summerhill, please give us a ring if you want to. We'd be delighted Lucky to Lucky them, to whoever maybe, it is. Maybe Gareth might get his all our info. We thought tickets. it might have been you, Gareth, no, or no. Carl. We said if, no, if you no, didn't no. arrive into work, if you didn't arrive into work, we no, know it was you. No, unfortunately not. Marie, thank you so much for your time today. To Maggie and to Chris for their help. And Sinead is next with the mid-morning. No Bosco today, though, Sinead. We'll see you tomorrow. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.